Well, recently I was talking to a friend about the, the Rocky movies. Any Rocky fans out there? Anyone love the Rocky films? And uh, I, because of gro- when I was growing up, my parents were strict about what we could watch and what we couldn't watch. I don't regret that. I in many ways appreciate it. But because of that, I jumped into certain movie series in weird spots. Because I wasn't allowed to watch certain movies, but then by the time the later movies came out, I was allowed to watch, or at least I could, I could go and watch on my own. And so when it comes to all the Rocky movies, the first of the Rocky movies that I watched was Rocky IV. And I know that's kind of weird because there's so much before it, but I remember watching Rocky Ford, and it's the one with Ivan Drago, the Russian boxer, and there's this scene at the beginning where Apollo Creed, who is this mentor to Rocky through the first three films, is going to fight Ivan Drago, and they're sort of capitalizing on this Cold War tension. The American is going to fight the Russian. And there's this scene where there's the introduction of Apollo Creed, and if you've seen the movie, you probably remember this. And Apollo Creed has, has given this introduction to the ringside announcer, and it's Sounds like this. They say, the former heavyweight champion of the world, and then all these nicknames, the Dancing Destroyer, the King of Sting, the Count of Monte Fisto, the Prince of Punch, the Master of Disaster, and Rocky's kind of rolling his eyes while it's going on and on, the one and only Apollo Creed. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you know things go downhill very quickly for Apollo Creed. But here he is in this introduction having all these different names mentioned to try to describe his greatness and who he is. And when we get to this passage that we've been studying in Isaiah chapter 9 and the song that we sang this morning and the videos that we've been watching, we realize that in Isaiah chapter 9, what the prophet Isaiah is doing is sort of like what happens when the introduction for Apollo Creed is happening. He's trying to give us an appreciation of the greatness and the goodness and who this coming king actually is. And he uses these four names for Jesus. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the names of Jesus. And let's look at our passage together in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. We sang this lyric this morning in our last song. What this simply means is that the outcome of history itself rests upon Jesus Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and here's the four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah is prophesying uh, about a kingdom and that the increase of this kingdom will never end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we looked at this passage last Sunday, but what I want to do this morning with this passage is I want us to push in to each of these four names of Jesus and simply ask the question, what does this name reveal about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what might it mean for you this morning? Whatever you're going through, wherever you're coming from, whatever this week looks like. I know this is the holidays and many people are excited and and just ready to celebrate, but you also know that the holidays are a very difficult season for many people for many different reasons. Just in the last two or three days, I've become aware of four people in the peripheral of my life that have passed away. And one of them was a father with six children. And for that family, this Christmas will not be just celebrating. This Christmas will not be the joy that some of us will experience. And so when we walk through seasons like this as Christians, what we learn is that to grieve with those who grieve and to rejoice with those who rejoice often means that we have to do both at the same time. 
We have to be able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but we have to be willing to enter into the grief of those who are suffering. And many have suffered greatly this year, and many are suffering now. And whether you're rejoicing or grieving, these names mean something. And they have something for us this morning. So I want us to look at this together. And the first name that Isaiah uses here is that Jesus is, this king is our wonderful counselor, which simply means this truth, that he leads us. That he leads us. I'm a planner. That's like my personality. You know, there's this sort of like, as a planner, I see the world in two groups of people. People who are like me, who like to plan things out and kind of have ready, things ready to go. And then people who just want to see the world burn. That's, that's the other category of people. So there's planners and then there's people who apparently just, won't, just love chaos. <clears throat> And so as a planner, I like things organized. I like to know what's coming. I like to anticipate things. I like to, when I know I have a crucial conversation coming up, I like to have it in my head multiple times before I actually have it. I like to know what's coming up, right? I've plan- we have our sermon series for 2022 planned all the way till this time next year. I'm just a planner. Now, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, it works for me. But one of the things that I've learned is that I have children that are planners too. And that's not as fun for me. Because the one thing a planner doesn't enjoy is other people who have other plans <laughs> that conflict with their plans. And my girls, especially two of the three of them, are such hardcore planners. And it's like, you know, when you have kids, which you see all of your strengths and weaknesses in that little human being walking around, they're kind of flaunting it in front of you. Like, this is your fault. This is who you are. And so when my girls are just harassing me with questions about what's coming up and what are we doing next, and Madeline, every night before, even, even we just finished dinner, and she's like, what's for breakfast tomorrow? And, like, I can't get angry because I'm actually thinking the same thing. What's for breakfast tomorrow? But planners love to kind of have a way of getting things done. And when we can't make our plans, we get frustrated. Now, what are plans? Plans are actually our effort to lead ourselves and to lead others. But how many of you have learned that in life you can't plan for everything? There's things that happen. There's things that come our way that we can't anticipate. Natural wisdom and human planning has its limitations. All of us can look back at our lives at times when we received bad advice. How about times when we gave bad advice to someone? Or even our advice wasn't bad, but it just wasn't enough. We couldn't see what was coming. And so we need counsel. And Jesus is a king who is a wonderful counselor, but we don't just need counsel, we need good counsel. And a counselor is one who is able to make wise plans. But in the Hebrew, the phrase that Isaiah uses here when he describes the king, Jesus, as a wonderful counselor, there's actually in it implied supernatural wisdom. That this is not just wisdom that you can get through natural means, but that this king is coming to us with wisdom that we don't have access to if we don't have access to him. The only way to get the wonderful counsel, the supernatural wisdom that Jesus gives us is to be with him. He knows what we can't naturally know, and so he counsels us with his knowledge and his wisdom that James says all wisdom, it comes from above. Now, what do we need to know in order to receive him as a wonderful counselor? I, I, four things I thought of. First, we need to know his word. 
his, his scripture. We need to spend time, Christians should be spending time daily in scripture, reading it, meditating upon it, sharing with others. That's why we do our read together plan as a church, so that we have this place to gather online in our phones and on our computers to read passages together and to share insights. And I'm always so encouraged to read those and to benefit from those. But if we're going to receive, many people want God to give them advice and insight at strategic moments of life, but they don't want to put the daily work in of being in his word. His most pure form of counsel that comes to us is already in our hands. It's the scriptures. And so we need to know his word. But not only do we need to know his word, secondly, we need to know his character. Who is this God? Who is this wonderful counselor? And when we read the scriptures and when we go to study the scriptures, the number one question that I ask when I read a passage and study a passage is always this. What does this passage reveal to me about the character of God? It's dangerous for us to read the Bible first asking, what does it teach me about me? What do I get out of it? We need to start by saying, what does this passage teach us about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? And then the second question is this. In the light of that truth, how should I live? Who am I? So everything we're getting from Scripture starts with a revelation of God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so that we might then better see ourselves for who we are and who God created us to be. We have to see his character. Number three, we need to know his deeds. What has he done? That's how we can see, you know, people say that actions speak louder than words. Well, what has God done? And I think that's why community matters so much is that as we share stories with each other about how God has helped us through things. How many of you, God has helped you and strengthened you through something? Well, that's a story that somebody else in this church and in this community needs to hear. Because as we begin to hear what God did for one, we believe that he will do it for another. So it's his word, it's his character, it's his deeds. And then lastly, if we're going to receive his counsel, we need to know his heart. What does God love? What does he value? And we know that he loves people and he values his mission. So in knowing these things, we can receive counsel from him in all situations of life. What I love about Jesus as our wonderful counselor is that not only does he give us what we need, but he actually gives us things we don't know we need. If he is the supernatural wisdom and the wonderful counselor, then there are times that he will lead us and direct us into things that you don't even know you need yet, but God knows that you need it. So this morning, if you're here and you need direction, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. If you need wisdom, he desires to give it to you. This is who he is. The second thing that we see is that he is a mighty God, which means that he fights for us. Now this term, mighty God, many times in the Old Testament, this is a title of the Lord himself. And so when Isaiah wrote that he would be a mighty God, everybody knew what he was claiming, that he's talking about God himself. And this term, mighty God, speaks of his strength and his power, specifically on behalf of his people and in battle. You know, this time in history, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when Isaiah was writing, Everybody thought that military conflicts were actually spiritual conflicts. That the stronger God, his people would win the battle. And that's why even Joshua's conquest of the land was evangelistic in nature. Because by defeating the people and taking the lands, it was a proclamation that there's one true God. And so often we struggle with the Old Testament and the, the war and the conquest and the defeats and the killing and stuff. But even that was for the glory of God to declare that there is one true God because the ancient Near Eastern people believed that whoever was the true God would actually, his or her people, would win that battle. And so when Isaiah says that Jesus, this king, is our mighty God, what he's saying is, is that he will fight for us. 
And a few years ago, maybe it's been five or six years ago, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Sunday, I had the opportunity to speak here at Trinity. I wasn't on staff here at the time. And I shared a message called, Everyone Needs a King. And it was from 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites, the people of God, who are basically functioning like a federation of tribes uh, who had been ruled by judges and currently were under spiritual rule of a priest named Samuel, they came to Samuel and they said, listen, this is going okay, but we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And one of the things that the Israelites said, what they wanted from their king is they said, we want a king who will go before us and fight our battles. That's what kings would do. They were supposed to go out and lead people to victory because they were divine and they were supposed to give victory to their people in battle. But Samuel actually came back to them with a warning and said, if you get this king, he's going to take everything from you. It's going to cost you everything. You think he's going to fight for you, but you're going to fight for him. And what we learn in this Old Testament interaction is this, is that I do believe everyone needs a king. Everyone serves something. Everyone has a master. But the question is, is will your king fight for you or will your king require you to fight for it? And everything else that people serve, whether it's power, money, control, acceptance, approval, um, what access, um, whatever that thing is, career, respect, you got to fight for that thing. You have to lay your life down in service to that king. But Jesus, our mighty God who fights for us, he is the one king who comes and says, I will lay my life down for you. So it's not a matter of whether or not you and I serve a king. It's do we serve a king who fights for us or do we serve kings who require us to fight for them? And there's this theme that runs through the Old Testament, which is this, that when the people of Israel come into a place of battle and conflict, many times the answer is just stand back and watch the Lord move. Watch him. Just scream and blow your horns and watch him (laughs) knock the walls down. Watch what he will do. He'll send the sound of an army, a rushing army that will cause them. He will send confusion into the camp, and they will turn on each other, and Gideon will have the victory, even though he never lifted his sword to obtain it, because God is a God. He is a mighty God who fights our battles for us, that God goes before us in battle, and he fights for us. David, when he faced Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 47, he knew this. He said, the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. So the question for us this morning is that when we face battles, battles around us, battles within us, battles with our emotions, battles with anxiety, relational battles, financial battles, do we take those battles as though they belong to us and we have to win them and fight them in our own strength? Or can we say, as David did on the field that day, this battle belongs to God. It belongs to the Lord. And he will go before me. And he will fight for me. Why? Because he's the mighty God. And he fights for us. Jesus Christ has already won the only battle that matters. Our battle is to live like it's true. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ has already won the only battle that matters. Our battle, my battle, every day, my battle and your battle is to live like that is actually true. Now, when we look at Jesus as our mighty God, it's one thing to actually have the might to win all battles. But it's another thing to have the might to end all battles. 
And Isaiah says here that not only is he a mighty God who will win all battles, but he is a mighty God who someday will put an end to all battles. In fact, in the passage before what I read, verses 3, 4, and 5, Isaiah prophesies that you have multiplied the nation, speaking to the Lord. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the mighty God who goes before and breaks the burden of the oppressor off the people who are being oppressed. But then verse 5 is very interesting. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, which was symbolic of all the people that you had defeated. There was this imagery that you would have the blood of the people that you've conquered on your garment because you killed them. Every boot and every garment rolled in blood, Isaiah prophesies, will be burned as fuel for the fire. What does he mean? Simply this. One day you won't need the boots anymore. One day you won't need the garment anymore. They'll be useful for something completely else, for a season of rest by a fire to give strength and courage to us. Now listen, what this means is that when we serve this mighty God, not only does he go before us in battle, but there's a day coming when the battle will be over. And there will be no more battle. And we, he, one day war itself will cease when we are with him. And that's what it means to serve this mighty God. The third name here is Everlasting Father. An Everlasting Father. Now, this means that he is for us. This maybe is a confusing title. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, be called the Everlasting Father? Jesus is not Father. But this is not Trinitarian language that, that Isaiah is using here. He's not speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's speaking to the very nature of this king. And this is out of the four names, right? Out of the four names that we talked about, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and we'll talk in a minute about Prince of Peace. This is the one that would have been the most uh, unexpected to the original audience. This, is, this idea of an everlasting father, there are lots of names for kings that were used. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. That stuff had been used by other kings. But everlasting father was not a title that was normally attributed to a king. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's showing us the father's heart for his people. That he's not just a king who's going to rule from a distance with force and with a title and with strength. But that as a king... He actually has the heart of a father for his people. This father here is to remind us that God is a benevolent protector, that he looks out for his children, uh, that this king cares for his people, that he has both the power to do so and the desire to do so, that he can care for us, that he can provide for us, that he can look out for us, but also that he desires to do so. He is our everlasting father. This passage here, this, this title here, speaks of three specific things. Number one, that this is a God who has concern for the helpless. And so should we, by the way. The concern that he has for those who are not able to help themselves, we should have that heart. Also, as the father, the second thing that this means is that he cares for his children, but he also will discipline his children. Not out of anger, but out of love. Because he cares who we are and who we are becoming but also this title of Everlasting Father speaks to our response to him as his children, that we are loyal to our father and that we are reverential towards him. This idea that this king is coming not just to reign and rule, but to have a relationship with us. You know, if your dad is the most powerful man in the world, he's still just your dad. 
I remember hearing stories about when JFK was president, how his, you know, he had the most important people waiting to talk to him out in the lobby, but his little kids could just run in to that Oval Office whenever they wanted and just go in. And because they always had access to the most powerful man in the world at that time. Why? Because he was their father. Do you see God that way? The most powerful being in the universe, God, the creator and sustainer of all, but you can walk right in whenever you want. Why? Because he's your father. Because he loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. This is the king that we serve. We don't have to approach him with fear. We don't have to approach him sniveling from a distance, unsure if he'll hear us this time because we've had a bad week because we messed up that morning. We can approach him as our father knowing that we will always belong to him as his sons and his daughters. And this is what Isaiah is speaking of, this coming king. If you need care and if you need love this morning, he is the everlasting father. And then lastly, I'm going to have the band come and join me. He's the prince of peace. And as the prince of peace, what this means is simply this, and we sang it this morning, Emmanuel, that he is with us, that God is with us. And this phrase, prince of peace, also speaks of, in the commentary I read, that he is a ruler whose reign will bring about peace. Why? Because the nations will rely on his just decisions in their disputes. So this isn't the sort of peace that just says, forget it, just clear the slate, Let's just ignore everything that's happened up until this point. This is a peace that only comes through justice, the execution of justice that leads to true peace. And we've talked about this, I think it was last week or the week before, that Jesus Christ comes to give us two types of peace. He comes to give us peace with God, and he comes to give us the peace of God. And peace with God is a fact that because Jesus Christ came and reconciled us to the Father, We were enemies of the Father, but even while we were his enemies, God sent his Son to pay the price for our sins so that we could be reconciled with the Father, be in right relationship with him. And as we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we receive peace with God. That is a factual thing that happens. But then also there is an experiential thing that happens called the peace of God. And again, I don't know what you're carrying into this week, but I think all of us could use the peace of God right now. Our country could use the peace of God. Our state could use the peace of God. Our neighbors, our family members, the peace of God. But here's the problem. So many people don't go to the Prince of Peace. They try to get the peace of God without having peace with God. You can't have one without the other. Last week, my, uh, our oldest daughter is in middle school, had her first little run-in with a little disciplinary issue at school. <laughs> and she told me what happened, and she's a rule follower, so she immediately was crushed, devastated that she got in trouble and that there were consequences for a very small thing that honestly, in a biased dad's opinion was like, why did they even, what is this even about? But I said, listen, we're going to respect their decision. You're going to go through what you have to go through, but I want you to know you're not in trouble with me. You're not in trouble with me. And we understand and we love you and we're committed to you. We see who Jesus is making you to be. You're not in trouble with me. So whatever happens today in school, whatever you have to go through, just keep running yourself. I'm not in trouble with that. I'm not in trouble with him. And whatever you're going through in life, whenever you lack peace, sometimes it's helpful just to remind ourselves, I'm not in trouble with him. I have peace with God. And because I have peace with God, I can have the peace of God in every situation. And this is what it means that Jesus came to be our Prince of Peace. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't come just to give out peace like a gift, like that we're going to unwrap this week and we're going to open up and say, oh, thanks for your peace. Jesus doesn't give us his peace. He gives us himself. Because the scriptures say that he himself 
is our peace, who has broken down the wall of hostility between us and the Father and between us and one another. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, which means he is with us. Now, this Christmas week, what do we do in the midst of all the busyness and the craziness and the fun and the sorrow and the mixture of emotions and feelings? We look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas. He has the best strategies. He has supernatural wisdom. So let him lead. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily, and someday he will defeat war itself. So let him fight for you. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Believe that he is for us and not against us. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we were still his enemies, and then he gives us himself. Believe that he is with us. And the best part in verse 7 is that it said this, of the increase of his government, there will be no end which means that forever and ever, the kingdom of God will, will, will increase more hope, more joy, more peace. Every other king and kingdom will pass away. Study history. So many kingdoms, so many nations, so many empires, the Romans, the Greeks, that people thought they'll never pass away. They're too powerful. They'll reign forever. But every king and kingdom of this world will pass away. Everything comes to an end. Empires and powers that seem invincible, history shows us their end. But there will be no end to the increase of this king and his kingdom. And I want to finish with this from the commentary that I read this week. The author said, what this means is that the empire of grace will forever expand. <laughs> Did you hear that? The empire of grace will forever expand. If we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength and his folly as our wisdom, we will be there with him to enjoy his triumph, forever increasing, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment in that kingdom when we will say, this is the limit can't get any better than this. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. Why? Because we have a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, a mighty God, and a prince of peace. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together this morning.